I'd like to offer some reflections this evening on the theme of anatta, not self, uh, which is a theme that really is central to the Buddha's teachings of liberation, as well as, as some of you have been commenting, to our lived experience of what most profoundly helps release the heart-mind from the experience of dukkha, difficulty, suffering. This, this teaching is a, a quietly priceless and profound liberating treasure. It's the, the groundless ground, the bottomless bottom line that means we don't ultimately need to be afraid of suffering. And yet, it's counterintuitive. You know. when, when we contemplate themes like mindfulness, kindness, forgiveness, compassion, equanimity, uh, joy, they all make kind of they're, they're common sense, you know, we can really uh, immediately see the sense of them. But this, this teaching, you know, it's, well, we have this intuitive sense of someone, a kind of center or substantial me that is behind or within my experience, and to whom it's somehow happening, right? And that someone can feel quite demanding. Uh, we, we can feel the, the pressures in the body and in the heart-mind of the self's wants and urges and aversions and anxieties and frustrations. can have a kind of lifetime's preoccupation with, with the koan, who am I? You know? So it, it feels just like the, the self is kind of alive and kicking, as they say. And, and yet, have you ever found it? You know? we, we can find body and thoughts and moods, and awareness, but have, have you ever found yourself as a, a kind of solid, continuous, reliable entity? You know, the great early uh, American, early psychologist William James said, when I search for myself, all I can find is a tickle at the back of the throat. You know? And, you know, there's something deeply curious, even kind of mysterious about this, isn't there? This, this sense of the self that is here and somehow not here. In what I call myself and also in others, you know, there's, there's this kind of elusiveness. You know, the way we can be kind of unfindability 
in, in, in others, isn't there? You know, that way in which you can be living, have lived for someone with 30 years and they can still surprise you somehow. Still feel I haven't quite kind of fully found them. You know? a kind of unknowability of, of self and others. And also the sense of the, the kind of plurality of the self. The self not being a a, a, a unitary, it's not a single thing. Don't, some of you have been commenting this week about noticing, oh, there are lots of characters in there somehow. You know, There's a whole kind of theater in there of different selves. And you know, we can perhaps sense into how this here and not here nature of the self can, can give rise to quite a a fundamental sense of instability, a kind of uncomfortable sense of the precariousness of things. We kind of sense the, there's something groundless about our experience. And, you know, it's therefore perhaps no surprise that um, the whole history of practice and and philosophy, the question of the existence or non-existence of the self has been very preoccupying. And we see this, if we look at the suttas, it was clearly preoccupying in the time of the Buddha. You know, there's something kind of uh, perennial about this concern of does the self exist or not, you know? And trying to resolve it one way or, or another, you know? Descartes, you know, I think... Therefore, I am. Phew, you know? <laughs> I kind of got an answer, you know? But also at a, a more emotional level, we, we, can, we can feel how the, the clinging to identities and self-views and opinions and to body and who I think I am at some level, is a, is a defense against the, the, the kind of this groundlessness. W- w- as Woody Allen put it, and, you know, I'd rather be a, a, crum- a crummy somebody than a complete nobody. You know? And this kind of urge to, well, the Buddha named this the urge to become, that part of the, the basic reactivity to the groundlessness of existence is an urge to to exist, to be, to become someone. And, you know, we can probably feel this urge in the textures of our heart and our, our body. There, there's a kind of relentless quality to it at times, isn't there? A, a kind of drivenness. It's part of what quietens down somewhat on retreat. You know? But even then, I can be thinking about the next retreat or you know, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to make this a project in some way. You know? This kind of uh, pursuit mentality. And, and you know, we see that, in, in a sober way, we see the havoc that this creates in our world, doesn't it? And can lead us to kind of trampling on, on others and trampling on the natural world, you know, this, this basic urge to become. And the Buddha also pointed out its opposite, which is the urge not to be, not to become, a craving for non-existence. 
that, again, we can may see reflected philosophically in, in a kind of nihilism at times, or the kind of particularly pessimistic forms of existentialism, you know. But also emotionally, we can see and sense and uh, know the, the urge somehow not to be, whether that's the kind of diving for the duvet after lunch or kind of just the, the sense of choosing numbness. You know, some of you have spoken about that experience of, re- of, of, of sleepiness as a kind of urge not to be, kind of checking out. And obviously that can have, have kind of very serious um, times in our lives around the urge not to be. And in the Dharma, we can sometimes see this teaching of not-self being translated as no-self or as an assertion that, that there is no self a kind of denial of any existence of the self. And this can lead to either a conscious or an unconscious uh, sense that the aim of practice is somehow to get rid of the self, to make it go away and to kind of live without it. Well, at one level, good luck. (laughs) Uh, a, A colleague of ours compares the kind of experience of the self to being like when you're trying to fit a carpet in the room and the, the carpet's just a bit too big for the room. So you get a kind of wrinkle and you push it down here and it comes up over there and push it down and it comes up over there, you know. And if someone was commenting today about this language of ego, which kind of is a, is a 20th century import. Into this. It's not a Buddhist concept. And sometimes there can be this view of I've got to get rid of my ego somehow. And that also can, can lead to a, a, a conscious or, again, unconscious sense of a slight pathologizing of personality, even of, of self-expression, a sense that this practice is actually somehow about blanching or compressing a sense of personal color. Do, do you get that? Sometimes we can kind of misinterpret the the quietude and neutrality of retreat and thinking, oh, this means that somehow to to have a sense of personal color or self-expression is somehow a bit taboo, something that I should be trying to live without. In in the Buddha's day, he really saw the dangers of a, a, a kind of annihilationist view of the self, the sense that the aim is to get rid of the self. He really saw the ethical danger of that. You know, if there's no self, then maybe it doesn't matter what I do. Right? It's very interesting. The one thing that the Buddha never says is not self is karma. You know, a sense of ethical responsibility for the consequences of our actions. He said it's actually better to have the belief in a self if that, than to believe in no self and to act unethically. So we can see that there, there seem to be you know, problems, dangers even, both with clinging to the view that the self exists as a permanent 
substance, a fixed essence or me, and with clinging to the view that there is no self. And this is perhaps why on the one occasion when the Buddha was asked kind of directly about whether the self does or doesn't exist, he remained silent. And his silence perhaps points to the fact that this is not the issue from his understanding. The question is not, is there a self or isn't there a self? He's not seeking to to question or counter the existence of an object or or a subject, but to illuminate the unconscious addiction to an activity. You know, the, 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 the phrase no self seems to trigger a kind of ontological discussion. Does it exist or doesn't exist? The Buddhist question we said the other day is more like, how does this work? You know, how is it that this experience of self comes to be? How is it created? What are the processes that give rise to it? What intensifies it and the suffering that's associated with it? What diminishes that? What quietens that? In, in, in kind of contemporary psychological language, he's saying the, the problem is not the existence or non-existence of self. It's about the, the issue of identification. Our tendency to relentlessly identify with things, kind of gross things, very subtle things. Physical things, conceptual, perceptual things. So, a focus not on entities, but on processes that need, as he puts it, need to be understood. Not just intellectually, though that's a, a good place to, to start, you know, this, these tears of insight that Akinjino spoke about, but, but through practice. And so the Buddha draws our attention to what he calls, calls the processes of I-making and my-making. Ahankara and mamankara. I-making, my-making. As activities. As, as deeply programmed activities. He calls them kind of over-formations because they're, they're, they generate a lot of other formations within them. Like Ajahn Suchito compares these to, these to kind of super programs on the computer that generate a lot of other programs and activities. And the Buddha identifies three dimensions of these activities. One is the dimension of what he calls self, or what is translated as self view, sometimes translated as personality belief which is identification with definitions, self-descriptions, self-views, self-images, beliefs about myself. And, and this may take a, a kind of philosophical quality, seeing myself as a kind of essential or permanent entity that's identified with or contained within or owning 
or independent of body or mind. Can you feel that philosophical definition? Sees the self as this or as this, you know, or that this is somehow belonging to a larger self, you know, or independent of it. But at a, at a kind of more lived level that actually expresses those, often those implicit kind of philosophical uh, views, our identification with roles, you know, our roles in our family, in our workplace, amongst our friends, the, the, the self-views, the self-images, the stories and beliefs about who I am, what I'm like, you know, about my past, you know, the way we can be identified with a story about our past, or identified with some projection of a self into the future. The movie, as, as uh, Akinchina called it. So, this, I am this or that. Basic self-views that kind of are a bit like a, a jelly mold. You know? oh, do you call it jello mold? Is that right? Yeah, the common. <laughs> you know, these kind of molds that we, we kind of pour our experience, squeeze our experience into them either consciously or unconsciously. Yeah? The whole kind of richness of our experience gets... Maybe it's a bit like kind of clothes that we've grown out of, you know, that we continue to put on each day. I have those precious moments when I first wake up and there's no particular self-view around, and then it arrives, doesn't it? You know? And we can feel, oh, this kind of... kind of shaping that happens. That... That, that, to use the Buddha's word, that binds, that limits, that constricts, you know, that might have been true in a moment in the past, or helpful, or, or protective in a, in a moment in the past, a way of making sense of some experience in the past, but actually that it's time to outgrow. You know? So this, this level of self-views and self-images that reflects and builds on a more subtle sense of self, kind of positioned in relation to others. You know, other, other selves, other beings, other things. And, and this is the domain of, of, of mana, which has got this kind of basic comparison of being better than, less than, or equal to. Better than, less than, equal to actual people who we, with whom we compare ourselves with in one of those you know, ways. Or to imagined ideals and standards, how we want or don't want to be. Can you feel that? You know, the, the kind of basic... It, it, it can feel a kind of intuitive, felt sense of me as separate and existing in relation and comparison to others, or to what is not me. And it, it's, it's reinforced by language, isn't it? You know, I and you, the pronouns. Wittgenstein said, 
the, the, the sense of self is a shadow cast by grammar. You know? Isn't that astute? You know, just see how a language of pronouns that's constantly I, you, he, they, me, you know, is, is a kind of, it's creating this sense of separateness in relation to however we conceive that. We know, you know, how that can flip over and how it can be very loud at times, can't it? This can be responsible for a lot of suffering, this pattern. Compare and despair, as they say, you know? And the self-criticism that's kind of never finds, you know, the internal judge who never finds me not guilty. You know? and it, in, in Oxford, you can kind of meet these Nobel Prize winners and find that they're still doing it, you know? It kind of keeps up with progress, the inner critic, right? You know? And, you know, this is... This is you know, there's a pathos to this because a lot of our anxiety and kind of self-sabotage and, and shame, depression can come out of this pattern, a deeply entrenched pattern. You know, the Buddha said this is a pattern that only finally dissolves in the final stage of awakening. So it's something we're going to have time to get used to, you know, <laughs> and working with. I find it helpful because it can be, it's such a subtle positioning, isn't it? Of a, of a self that's somehow separate. So these two, self-view, kind of definitional, the, the more kind of relational, uh, kind of comparing mind. And then the my bits, because those are both me's, if you like. There's the my, isn't there? There's the, 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 the ownership the craving, the tanha, that, that takes ownership of body, for instance. You know, if, if you feel into the kind of sense of body, isn't it? The default is so easily for it to be soaked in a sense of meanness and minus that makes it kind of the basis for kind of neuroticism in a certain way. You know? My body, my thoughts my ideas, my people, you know. So when the, these, these are the processes of I-making and my-making that the Buddha identifies, that when they're believed and invested in and clung to, we see the inseparability of self and of suffering, of dissatisfaction, the kind of entangling nature of I-making and my-making, and how the kind of intensifications of that, the louder that gets, the more the suffering intensifies. And how these are kind of saboteurs of the Brahma-Viharas as well. You know, the more preoccupied I am with my self-image, the less capacity I'm going to have for joy, or the less availability I'm going to have to resonate with the experience or suffering or joy of others. And so these are are kind of manifestations of this uh, process of what the the Buddha describes as dependent co-arising. You know, the Buddha sees self 
and indeed all phenomena as dependent arisings. This is, and we've mentioned this a couple of times already on this retreat, this is the Buddha's really experiential map at the heart of the Dharma that illuminates how self, world, dissatisfaction, distress come to be through the kind of mutual supporting and dependency of different factors of body and mind. And this is a, a big topic, and uh, I'm not going to go into it in detail right now. But just to invite us to notice in our own experience, if you like, at a practical level, how the experience of self is a dependent arising. It arises dependent on other conditions. The Buddha invites us to investigate this in relation to dukkha, this experience that we've spoken about of dissatisfaction, unsatisfactoriness, you know, often translated as suffering. And the Buddha's hypothesis, you like the kind of algorithm at the core of the Dharma, is the sense that dukkha depends on tanha, which is craving. It's the reactivity to Vedana, right? It's the wanting the pleasant. It's the not wanting the unpleasant. It's the disconnecting from the neutral. And this is what the Buddha is pointing to in the second ennobling truth, that, that, that dukkha and craving mutually depend. When there's one, there's the other, right? I kind of think of this as the coding, really, that, like a piece of computer coding that runs through the whole dharma, generates, if you like, the whole dharma. So what do we find? When there is this wanting things to be different, the sense of unsatisfactoriness in the present intensifies, doesn't it? When I want things to be different, don't like it here and now. What happens when we have that experience? The body tightens. Can we feel that? If I want something that's not here or don't want something that is here, the body tightens, the mind tightens. The Vedana of what we want or don't want also begins to be pumped up, doesn't it? You know? I want that thing that's not here, and it kind of gets big in consciousness, doesn't it? The wanting pumps up the Vedana, or the not wanting. I don't want that knee. I don't want that painful thought. You know? The urge to do something in reaction to the Vedana intensifies. This is the kind of genesis of the driven doing mode that some of you have spoken about. The sense of urgency to the doing, doesn't that intensify? You know? I mean, maybe, maybe it's helpful just to relate this to an example. Let's, let's relate it to experience of being on retreat. You know, you have a sitting where it's just a difficult sitting, right? The mind doesn't want to settle, there's hindrances around. The bell goes, at the end of the sitting, the thought comes up, I can't do this unpleasant Vedana. What happens to that then? There's a kind of reaction, I don't want that, push it away. Yeah? It gets more unpleasant, I really can't do this. 
the experience becomes, you know, of dukkha, doesn't it? This is unsatisfactory, there's suffering here. I may notice the body start, you know, is feeling quite kind of antsy and restless and tight, and the mind is kind of contracted, yeah. There's a real sense of this is, this is something that I can't do, and the, the, there's the sense of uh, I want to get out, you know. I want to get out. There's an urge to do something. We can notice that time is a dependent arising here, because time contracts, doesn't it? Or there's a sense of, oh, my goodness, you know, it's only Thursday. Got, you know, because this is endless, you know. And there's, there's a sense of the urgency of wanting to do something contrasted with this kind of uh, desert of vast eternity of time until, until we get to Sunday. The, the sense of, of self intensifies, doesn't it? Isn't that right? There's a sense of self that arises dependent also on the sense of other. I'm the one who can't do it. Everyone's sitting, else, everyone's sitting, sitting there like a Buddha, looking kind of peaceful and happy. They're getting a lot out of this, and I'm the only person here who's really struggling. You know? I shouldn't be here. You know? And so the self-story gets activated, doesn't it? The kind of rumination gets activated. Trying to find what's wrong, who's to blame, what does it mean about me, what does it mean about my future. Can we see how all these factors don't arise in isolation, but in mutual dependence upon each other? Can we see that? Because change one of them, what happens to that whole souffle, you know? You go to the mindful movement after the sitting, and you have a really good time. You really feel the body kind of moves, and it releases, and it relaxes, and there's a sense of well-being. So the, the body has changed, the contraction of the body. What happens to all the others? Don't they also change? Yeah, right? The sense of... of you know, not liking being here, that really quietens right down. The dissatisfaction quietens right down. The mind and body feel quite spacious, you know. There's a sense that time, oh yeah, this is good. They're kind of swimming along with the retreat. Here we are on Thursday. <laughs> lucky to have three more days to go, you know. Uh, the self-story, you know, because the, the pleasant mood doesn't bring a story with it, does it? Right? You know? We don't wake up in a pleasant mood in the morning and think, oh, what does this mean? What does this mean about me that I'm feeling so good, you know? We, we see that these factors change, you know, you only have to change one of these, you know? Or it could be that you see one of those little chipmunks that was around earlier, and your, your mood lifts and the aversion goes out. What happens to the, the dukkha souffle then? Doesn't it just collapse, you know? Or at least it diminishes, Right? And we start to notice, if we really stop and look, that these factors are, are co-shaping, co-intensifying together through the day. We're moving up and down, if you like, a spectrum of dukkha, of craving and aversion, and of selfing. So we start to discover, oh, maybe selfing isn't actually so, so 
usefully seen as a noun, as a verb, as an activity. It's something that we do. Does this make sense? Can you feel it? You know, that the selfing intensifies, grows strong with all these other factors that grow strong. In fact, you know, this is what the Buddha really points to, the, the factor that makes the difference, and this is the point of the four ennobling truths, is the factor of the craving and aversion. Selfing intensifies with the intensification of craving and aversion and diminishes with the diminishing of it. At least that's the hypothesis, to check out in our own experience. A spectrum, a spectrum of experience. When I'm having a tantrum, really intense, right? (laughs) Body tight, mind tight, dukkha high, aversion high, self story high, other story high, time feeling oppressive, right? What we get to experience as practitioners is is a much greater range of the spectrum, isn't it? Because we come to a place like this and have conditions that don't stimulate the self-story. And there's the chance really to explore what it is for these activities to grow much quieter, much quieter much quieter, you know, and to discover, ah, the peace and the space and the availability of Brahma-Viharas as these factors diminish and grow quieter, you know. Uh, And, you, you know, what the Buddha's pointing to is the potential of this spectrum to reduce at times to zero. We could say that so long as we're having any experience whatsoever, there is some degree of creative activity, fabrication taking place that is dependent on the ways of looking and the belief systems that are operating in any moment. Does this make sense? Can we feel this? And can we feel how the selfing also gets patterned? The kind of... We create patterns, don't we? Kind of grooves, you know? The self-characters that emerge are particular habitual formations, you know? Where things intensify in particular shapes. Maybe it's the the critical shape, the self-critical shape, or the irritated shape, or the anxious shape, you know? And... You know, this, this also, this way of looking, and, you know, this is all these teachings that the Buddha gives are offered as contemplative ways of looking rather than necessarily kind of maps of saying, this is what's real. It's saying, this is a skillful way to look, you know. It also helps explain this plurality of selves, you know. But these are patterns that have momentum. The Buddha's word for them are sankharas. They are formations that create. They're kind of programs that create experience. And that that may actually be a, 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 a more, feel a more helpful way of accounting for this sense of there are lots of persons in here, lots of beings in here, than some idea of a unitary self. So, 
you know, even though these patterns get ingrained, we can have a, a growing kind of sense that this experience of, of, of a continuous self is somehow an illusion. That, that actually it's more liberating to see in terms of processes that have their own patterning. So in the Satipatthana Sutta, we're encouraged to see the body as body rather than as self, right? Kind of body, bodying, without a bodier, you know, chitta, you know, or thinking, thinking without a thinker, moods changing like the weather without an owner, anger, angering, judging, judging, worry, worrying. Can we, can we feel this? Can we sense this? That possibility that there's suffering, but without there needing to be a sufferer to whom it's happening. This can all happen without a kind of substantial, permanent me, or as Miss Piggy would put it, moi, <laughs> at, at the middle of it all, to whom it's happening. You know? and, and that this, when we taste it, isn't dissociation. It's really, really not dissociation, nor annihilation, nor, nor blankness but a certain sense of a weight lifted, a certain lightness of being, a, a, a taste of freedom. But these teachings are something to practice. This is about bhavana mayapanya, as, as, as Akinjuna said. This is about cultivation. So how do we cultivate this way of looking? You know? I mean, it's, it's important to acknowledge that, that the Buddha is encouraging this flexibility of ways of looking. There are times, there are, there are plenty of times, where the Buddha speaks in terms of self. You know? that, that seeing things in terms of self is very appropriate, very helpful, very important. You know, in the domain of ethics, in the domain of caring for each other, looking after oneself, one looks after others, looking after others, one looks after oneself, says the Buddha. In our metta practice, you know, it makes sense to have a set uh, to, to wish well the relative self. You know? The whole domain of, of, of personhood, you know? the, the Buddha doesn't say so much about this, but we, we, we need to honor that we are distinctive persons. Our distinctive character, our distinctive shaping that in fact can be released and kind of unbound through practice. You know, we, we need to show up as, as persons, as selves, 
in the domains of parenting, don't we? You know, in intimate relationships, in sexuality, in friendship, in creativity, psychotherapy. You know. it's, it's, we are relational beings at the relative level, and this needs to be honored. And we know, particularly and you know, before we start practice, we know the dukkha of just being identified with that. And so as we practice, we begin to taste the, the freeing, the healing that can come through also, like, like it, I can look through the spectacles of self, and that's important to be able to do as a human being in relationship. So liberating also to be able to look through the spectacles of not-self. You know? And mindfulness naturally encourages this. The, the very nature of sati, as we've reflected, and Akinjano reflect, and Yuka both reflected this morning, it kind of, to some extent, decompresses the sense of self out of experience because things have more space they're seen more clearly. There's a sense of, of developing that space between stimulus and reaction where we have the power to choose. And so the, the craving and aversion quieten down. You know. So the very nature of mindfulness is to quieten reactivity and open space to kind of slow the cascade that so easily cascades from, from craving, you know, Liking, wanting, must have it, I must have it. I must have it before they have it. You know. So, you know, as we practice mindfulness, and some of you really know this in your bones, that, that the orientation to self, to the orientation uh, to, to see things in terms of not-self, to experience the liberating taste of not-self gra- gradually deepens over time and with practice. You know? And this is a deeply beautiful thing, extraordinary potential that we have. However, the Buddha also recommended, as well as cultivating this in our mindfulness practice, consciously, deliberately cultivating this Perception of not-self as an anupassana. Now, this is a word that Akinchino used this morning. Chitta anupassana, he gave us, which is chitta, so the heart-mind, anupassana, to see along, to see into, to see with, even. Translated as contemplation of the heart-mind. And the Buddha recommended anatta anupassana. So to practice seeing things with the perception of not me, not mine. In fact, as the Buddha said to his son, Rahula, he said you should practice seeing all phenomena as they really are with proper wisdom. Thus, this is not mine. This is not I. This is not myself. So, you know, these insights into not self may arise as a fruit of our mindfulness practice, right? May arise as a fruit of our mindfulness practice. What the Buddha is also recommending is making them the practice itself. 
you know, where I choose that as a way of looking at, you know, looking and experiencing things in those terms, not me, not mine, as a perception that we can cultivate. So how do we do this in practice? And some of you are very familiar with this practice. You know, just as we sit here or stand here now, just that sense of body, ah, not me, not mine, just body, bodying. You, know, you can do it with the external body, look at it and say, ah, not me, not mine. The internal sense, not me, not mine. With thoughts, you know, not me, not mine, just a thought. Joseph Goldstein says, you know, if we haven't seen the selfless nature of thoughts, we're tormented by them. When we do see, see this, they become like a wisp of air. There's not much there. These thoughts now, not me, not mine. Moods and emotions. Not me, not mine. Habit patterns. The judging pattern. Ah, not me, not mine. Thank you for your opinion, you know? (laughs) Intentions. It's an interesting one. You, know, you can play with that in the walking meditation. Kind of letting the intention arise. Not me, not mine. Impulses. The thought, not me, not mine. Not me, not mine. <laughs> you know? Awareness itself, which is often where the runkle in the carpet goes as we kind of see other things in terms of not me, not mine. And sometimes we've come from spiritual traditions that encourages, encourage an identification with awareness or an identification with consciousness. The Buddha's early teachings very much oriented to us seeing, ah, not me, not mine. An activity rather than an entity. Very illuminating, very helpful practice. You know, can be very kind of poignant, touching practice in in the kind of interpersonal realm, with family, with partners, with friends, pets, possessions. Ah, not me, not mine. And and as we do this, and really kind of acclimatized to it, and some of you are very acclimatized to this, you know that you can feel in often where the identification is in any particular moment. You know, oh, right now it's with body. Oh, body experienced as me in this moment. Or in another moment it's body experienced as mine. Somehow the awareness owning the body. So just to investigate that and to practice You know, the Buddha's instructions to his son. What is it to see things in terms of not me, not mine? And, you know, the Buddha really encourages, as we know, that the thoroughness of this practice, 
thoroughly to investigate our experience and to, and to practice seeing all domains of our experience in terms of not me, not mine. He offers this template of the aggregates, the khandas, which, which are, again, I think most helpfully seen as a contemplative template for encouraging this contemplation rather than some kind of ontological truth. You know. So these, these, the Buddha kind of organizing experience into these five domains of body, of so, you know, the body, examining it, looking in the mirror, looking at it externally, feeling it internally, not me, not mine. Vedana, the second of these. Just notice how there can be an identification with the Vedana and that image that he gives. You know, the, the imagery, the, the Buddha offers similes with each of these. He says, you know, contemplate the body like a, a lump of foam on water. Not me, not mine. Rather than something kind of substantial. Contemplate Vedana as like raindrops on water, changing every moment. You know, what is it to, to, to practice seeing bod, body pain, pain in the body, the Vedana of that as not me, not mine, not under control in a certain way, just to allow it to be raindrops on water. Perception which at one level is the, is the faculty of recognizing and naming and knowing what things are that's shaped by memory and habit, at a deeper level we could say perception is actually experiencing anything at all. Sights, sounds, tastes, touches, thoughts. Not me, not mine. The Buddha compares perception to a mirage. Such a telling simile. You know. Perception to a mirage. Appearances appearing because conditions give rise to them, not because there's something intrinsically there. So perception of self, not me, not mine. Formations, these, these sankhara, which, which have this momentum of volition and intention in them. Patterns, habits of eye-making and my-making. Perceptions of, of, uh, of the habits of, of, of perceiving time. Not me, not mine. And then consciousness itself. You know, which the Buddha describes as a kind of momentary knowing. Not me, not mine. Try it right now. Can there be knowing without a knower? In one, on one occasion, the Buddha said this to, this, uh, to his practitioners, the monks. Practitioners, what do you think? If a person were to carry off or burn or do as he likes with the grass, the twigs, the branches and leaves here in Jeta's Grove, where we are, would the thought occur to you, it's us that this person is carrying off, burning or doing with as he likes? No, venerable sir. Why is that? Because those things are not ourself, nor do they belong to ourself. Just so, practitioners, 
said the Buddha. Whatever is not yours, let go of it. Your letting go of it will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. And what is not yours? Form, body, is not yours. All the different forms that are the objects of sense consciousness, not yours. Vedana, not yours. Perception, not yours. Formations, these patterns and volitional habits, not yours. Consciousness, not yours. Let go of them. Your letting go of them will lead to your welfare and happiness for a long time. Consciousness like a conjuring trick. Formations like the wood of a banana tree that doesn't have a core to it. Some of you have been noticing that today. This habit is empty somehow. (laughs) And that somehow the disidentification from these leads to our welfare and happiness for a long time. Self like a rainbow, a mirage, created by conditions in the moment, Allowed to be beautiful, colorful, but also we know that it's not substantial. It's evanescent. It's empty. And, you know, the Buddha extends this understanding because as we investigate, we find that the arising of self and the arising of world and the arising of other are mutually dependent. They co-arise. Just like with the kind of the, the low mood about the difficult meditation, you know, these factors of world and other and time other people, comparison, self, co-arise and co-diminish. So this is not a model of a selfless me inside a solid and substantial world. Can you feel that? It's not that somehow this is not self and everything else is solid and substantial and real, you know? That's part of what the similes highlight, the conjuring trick of consciousness, the mirage of perception, revealing something profound and amazing and radically liberating about the nature of all our experience. It's inherent insubstantiality. The insubstantiality of all phenomena despite their appearances. All exists, Kachana. This is one extreme, said the Buddha. All does not exist. This is the second extreme. Without veering towards either of these extremes, The Tathagata, the word the Buddha named to describe himself, teaches the Dhamma of the middle way. Or as that's put more poetically in the later tradition, the Diamond Sutra, 
all conditioned dharmas, all conditioned dharmas and phenomena are like dreams, illusions, bubbles, shadows, dewdrops, and a lightning flash. Contemplate them thus. Appearances happen. This is the hypothesis. Appearances happen, but are not substantial in the way that we habitually take them to be. And the intention here isn't philosophical or poetic even, but practical. To free ourselves from the craving and aversion and the clinging to what is in fact ungraspable, like the mirage or the rainbow. When we see that things don't exist in the substantial way that we'd assumed, attachment to craving and aversion and clinging start to make less and less sense. We see that the appearance appearance of substantiality is dependent on the mind and the beliefs, on the way of looking in the present and all the assumptions and beliefs and conceptions that are somehow kind of implicit in that way of looking. We tend to look in a way that assumes all exist. Right? We tend to assume the substantiality of things. So, hmm, this kind of unfolding avenue of, of anatta, of not-self. This, this challenge and opportunity as a human being who's practicing dharma, both to honor the relative self, fully to honor the relative self, our personhood, our relating, our loving, our care, our responsibilities in ethical terms, and thoroughly to understand and to know the emptiness of all of this, the liberating emptiness. Not using this teaching of emptiness to somehow bypass, spiritual bypassing, you may know the phrase, where somehow the relative self, the person, the relationship is not honored. I've become prematurely someone who has no preferences. I've been told that Buddhist men are particularly prone to this predicament. I've been told by by women that Buddhist men, (laughs) including myself. So we're not using this as a teaching somehow to, to spiritually bypass the personhood, the relative, the relational. And we are exploring this profound opportunity of seeing through the lens of not-self, of not taking things personally. Not me, not mine. So that we can honor the movements of self and relationship and their colors and characters like the kind of multicolored firework display in the night sky. 
and, and we begin to have just the intimations of, the, the kind of deepening knowing of the profound levels of awakening that are possible as we gradually come to know the inherent empty and insubstantial nature of all things, which is the insight that ultimately uproots the deeply ingrained patterns of craving and aversion and clinging as we come more and more to see their insubstantial nature. And what does this enable? It enables all that Yuka spoke about last night. She so beautifully described how these teachings of insight, wisdom, emptiness are not separate from the teachings of compassion, of the Brahma-viharas, of joy, of compassion, of equanimity. The great and, and beautiful being that was Dilgo Kyentse Rinpoche, one of the great Tibetan sages of the 20th century, said, when you understand the empty, selfless nature of phenomena, the energy to bring about the good of others dawns uncontrived and effortless. That energy is compassion. And as the, the great sage Sri Nisargadatta put it, and you may know this, he said, wisdom sees that I am no thing. Love sees that I am everything. Between these two, the life of the wise ones flows. Let's just sit for a few moments. So thank you for your attention. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.